Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, what is going on? Welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James, and I'm pumped to be here with you all back in the diner. Y'all, did you notice we changed the ending up a little bit on this thing? How many of y'all listen all the way to the end and have noticed that the end sounds a little bit different? I'm telling you what, y'all, we, we're keeping you on your toes around here, friends, keeping you on your toes. Speaking of keeping you on your toes, I'm really excited to bring out my man. This is a guy where we have been running in circles together, but we have only met very briefly one time in person, so briefly that he doesn't remember, it, and I do, and I remember it incorrectly. So how meaningful was it? I don't know, but... We have been running in the same circle for a long time. He is a fellow speaker and just a damn delight. He is someone who I've learned a lot from, and he doesn't even know that. So, But I'm really excited to bring him out here in just a minute. Let me tell you about Arel Moody. He is known as a human behavioral investigator. I don't know what that sounds like, but it sounds like a pickup line I would have used in college. But anyway, we'll learn about it. Um, he has extensively studied the intricacies of human dynamics and relationships. He's a best-selling author who has spoke to over 750,000 people. He counts every single person every time he meets them. Throughout 48 states and five countries, he's been invited to speak at the White House, casual. He's been there twice, casual. He's also done three TEDx talks. He's been featured in a whole bunch of publications that you have heard of. New York Times, Forbes, Essence, HuffPo. He's out here. He also contributes to a show called The Doctors. And for fun, Aurel likes to dance. He's performed at MSG, the Madison Square Garden. Easily the best place to perform on earth, but I'm a biased New Yorker, so there's that. He even had a viral video featured on The Ellen Show. I'm super excited for you to hang out with me and my boy, Aurel Moody. So let's bring him out right now, sliding into the diner booth. Aurel, what do you say, my guy? James, I am I'm so excited to be here. And I, I usually am in a position to give introductions to people and never receive introductions. So to receive <laughs> such an introduction, um, I will honor this moment forever. Bingo, brother. Sit in it, bathe in it. <laughs> Well, I'm super pumped to be hanging out with you, brother. You are a fellow New Yorker, and that makes me happy. I don't. Do you still you still claim New York? I know you live in upstate New York. Are you a proud New Yorker through and through? Do you do you, you know? You... So I grew up in Brooklyn, right? So it's yeah. actually it's a it's a question that is very fascinating. Um, I went to upstate New York um, to a place called Binghamton University. That's where I went to college, mm-hmm. and then kind of stayed in upstate New York and kind of fell in love with the place. So the question that I think is the question that you should always ask yourself <laughs> is: if you're not in your home state, right? So like if you were in Colorado, for example, and someone said, "Hey James, where are you from?" How do you answer that? That determines where your allegiance is, mm. right? Because, mm. you, you know, you go, oh, I'm from New York. Okay, great. Where? And then you go, oh, that's a good question. How do I answer it? Like, <laughs> do I say upstate New York or do I say Brooklyn? But I've decided recently to fully uh, uh, embrace my upstate New York roots because I've been in upstate longer than I was in New York City. So I think because of that, I'll, I, so I answer now, I live in the Syracuse area, but I was born in Brooklyn. 
Because yeah, yeah. I can't let go to I can't I can't let go to Brooklyn. No, you definitely cannot. And I mean, after spending time with you, it's clear that you haven't left let go of the Brooklyn in many ways, uh, which is beautiful. Which is beautiful. Yeah. So it's a good. It offers a good explanation up top as well. <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, I love it. Now it's funny, you know, being from, you know, being from Brooklyn originally, and, you know, I grew up on Long Island and then lived a bunch of years in the city and in Brooklyn myself for a while in Harlem and, and whatnot. It's funny because now that you live in upstate New York and you're building pride for it, when you live in the Southern part of New York state, upstate New York is like, just past the Bronx. Right. Yeah. And like, and then all the way up, there's, there's like 10 hours of state left all yeah. the way up to Montreal, basically. Um, and so it's very interesting the way uh, that, that ego of New York uh, definitely takes over, even with our fellow New Yorkers. I'm like, you don't really live in New York. Where are you from? Yeah, Rochester? No, I mean, it's, it's super, <laughs> it's super fascinating because if you actually speak to almost anyone uh, outside of New York city, you don't really know anything. Like, I, I, there's still places in New York that I find out about that I had no idea existed. Right. And I've been in this one state, like, my whole life. So it's one mm -hmm. of those places where um, outside of New York City, you don't know about it. But that's actually, the funny part about it is that's that's actually why I fell in love with upstate New York. And and um, a, a lot of people don't know, because I, I get this question a lot, like, Aurel, you could live anywhere. Like, like why do you live here is, is a question I would get in some shape or fashion, right? And the reason why I love it so much is because uh, where the area in which I live, um, there's, no, there's no pretentious people. So let, let me explain this, right? I've traveled all over the country and I love all parts of this country. And whenever I decided like, where am I gonna put my roots? Where am I gonna like lay it down? It was important to me to be in a place where like, I didn't feel like everything was a pissing contest. You know, mm -hmm. like when I'm in certain again, it's not like a whole city is like this. That would be har horrible to say about a city, but there's certain areas where it's it's kind of a lot of like, well, what do you do? And you can tell I'm trying to gauge how how do you socially, economically match up to me? Mm. And then I will gauge if you are worth my time and effort if you do it. <laughs> um, up here, I feel like every, like no one cares. Like my neighbors, like there's a bunch of them who don't even know what I do for a living, you know? Yeah. Like, so. I'd love that, like, just human down to earth. And, you know, I think when you, you move around to different places, you can feel when people are just like this, like, just good human. And I think um, I have adopted a philosophy that says I like to visit the party. I just don't like to throw it. So mm, I like to be able to get to New York. I like to hang out and then I like come back and where it's like no one cares who I am. Yeah. <laughs> I respect the way you put that. I respect the way you put that. Yeah. You know, I, li I lived in upstate New York as well, uh, for, a, uh, for a while as well in Ithaca. And the whole time that I lived in Ithaca, I refused to change my Facebook address to Ithaca. I kept yeah. it as uh, Manhattan was where I had moved up there from. And I was like, I just, I just, I can't, I can't change. It. I wasn't ready to claim it. It, it just, it takes a beat. Uh, to really kind of uh, allow yourself to let go and see the beauty of it. But you're right. Upstate New York is filled with other, uh, so many hidden gems. I mean, Ithaca is a town, the Finger Lakes. You know, most people know New York City, and then they're like, oh, wait, isn't Niagara Falls there too? And that's about all they know. But, like, the Adirondacks are stunning, um, and uh, the Southern Tier is beautiful, Letchworth State Park. It really there's a whole bunch of upstate New York that is, is really beautiful, and it's wildly underrated. Yeah, it is. A, it is. It is absolutely a gem. And it's actually interesting. You, you said the thing about the Facebook thing, because the one thing that I think I cannot let go of is I still have a 347 area code mm -hmm. on my phone. And uh, there's a part of me that I don't know if I'll ever let that one go. Yep. Um, so Respect. I get that. 
I get what you're saying about that. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm in Minnesota now. I'm holding on to my 646. Uh, <laughs> so I get it. I get it. Now, Those are New York City area codes for anyone who's like, what's the 646? Yeah. <laughs> now, here's the beautiful thing about the fact that we're both New Yorkers. And this doesn't happen all the time with my guests. But you know your way around a diner. Um, and, uh, you have been, you have been to many a diner in your life. And I mean, just not just because you travel around the country, but you know, because you're a New Yorker over here, hey, don't watch your mouth. And so, so I'm wondering, do you have a favorite late night go to either when you were younger or maybe even still currently, do you have a favorite late night move that you love to eat? Yeah. So I'm actually, um, it, it's a really bad habit. Um, but you know, the food you shouldn't eat is always the food that you want to eat, you know? Mm, yep. And I'm always curious on how people do French fries. It's one of my biggest interests. Cause I think there's a thousand ways to do French fries, right. And a thousand mm -hmm. ways to do it wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always want to know the thickness of the fry versus the crispiness of the fry versus the, is it kind of like potatoy on the inside when you bite it, or is it crispy all the way through? So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a big fan of a big old plate of fries. And then um, ketchup, I like to put salt directly onto the ketchup, even though I'm aware fries have salt on them. Yeah, but I yeah. like a salty ketchup, and uh -huh. I like to dip them in, and I could eat a mountain of fries um, in, in, in every single form. So uh, I'm a huge fan, apparently, of the potato, and I didn't realize I loved the <laughs> potato so much until this question was asked. We only, we only dig out the good stuff here. Uh, so here's, here's, this is actually a, a valuable conversation to have, I believe, uh, maybe one of the most valuable we've ever had in the diner. And, uh, so there, as you mentioned, there are different French fry types. If you were yes. going to rank the types of French fries, no toppings, just the individual French fries, right? We got waffle fries, shoestring fries, steak yep. fries. We got, you know, thin cut. We got whatever, like all, like all sorts of curly fries, What's what's your what's your ranking? What's the best French fry in your opinion? And what's your least the, favorite? I have the most success in the waffle fry. Like mm. if you want to, if you see yeah. a waffle fry, you're almost guaranteed you're going to get a very crispy fry, which is yes. what I want. I actually tell people to bake it a little bit longer or fry it a little bit longer than they normally would because I, mm. I I do not like a soft middle. I don't like a potatoey. Yeah. Uh, so a steak fry lets me down the most. Um, so I'm going to say if you want to go. If you see the waffle fry, go for it. If you see the steak fry, it's it's you're gonna get let down more times than you're gonna be happy about it. I I don't know if I could like you more than I do right now. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. You'll notice that the the title of this podcast is Diner Talks, not Red Robin Talks, uh, because I don't you know, like they get bottomless steak fries at Red Robin. I'm like I don't need more than a couple of these mediocre French fries. This is why they probably went with the steak fries because they know they're not going to keep churning them through. <laughs> right? If they, if it, imagine it was bottomless waffle fries. You oh, know how man. much more bun like people would be lining up around a Red Robin. They, anyway. they would be out of business <laughs> by Tuesday because I'd be like, "You got, you got bottomless what? <laughs> what? Hold up! I'm there Hold all day. Yeah. All day. Yep." And I appreciate the pro tip of putting the salt on the ketchup. Uh, I'm in agreement with that move uh, for sure, for sure. So uh, yeah, no, I'm 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 here for this whole conversation. Now, if you so want to, if you want to really get like unnecessarily detailed with it, what I like to do is <laughs> sprinkle salt onto my ketchup, sprinkle mm -hmm. a little pepper onto the ketchup, and then I take a fry and I stir it in. Oh shoot! Okay, you know that's that's the unnecessary detail I'm going to give to the diner talk folks. <laughs> <laughs> then you can just and then the, the key that I learned about salt is that you can always add more salt, but you can never take salt away. 
but you can always add more ketchup. So Mm -hmm. there's always a solution. If you oversalt it, you just add more ketchup. If you undersalt it, you add more. And so you get to that perfect, salty, crispy, just, I got to eat too much of this. Because I'm going to tell you what the pattern is. I'm going to James the pattern. (laughs) You eat too much salty, greasy, and then what do you need to counteract it? You need sweet. That's how it works. So if you have too much salty, you need sweet. So then what happens is you eat too much, and then you start looking at that pie section. Mm -hmm. You start going, what pie is there? And if I had to choose... (laughs) I had to choose. It's either going to be key lime or lemon meringue all day. Oh, wow. Day. Okay. So I go, okay. I go, I go fries until I can't no more mm-hmm. and then end it with some pie. And then the next day I go, I'm never doing that again. And then you yeah. do it again the next like weekend. Naturally. Yeah. Naturally. Come on. I mean, how can you, yeah, it keeps calling you back for sure. They got a lasso yeah. on you that you didn't know you had around you. Um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> Uh, we've had many a debate here in the diner. I'm a cake over pie kind of guy. Uh, but, uh, my wife vehemently disagrees with me as have many of my diner guests. And, uh, good to see that, uh, our relationship was almost close. And then, uh, you told me that you go for pie over cake. No. So here's what's interesting. I would never choose a cherry pie. I would never choose a blueberry pie, right? I would Mm -hmm. never choose that, but I would choose a lemon meringue, a key lime and potentially Mm -hmm. a coconut cream. So I think it's the kind of pie, which is really like a cake's cousin. It's not really a pie. (laughs) Like we call it a pie, but like that's really more cake cousin. It's Mm -hmm. way more cheesecakey. Then it is pie. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I may let this slide, Arell. I got to think about it. Um. <laughs> I respect. I respect your 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 ability to hold or drop that. <laughs> Uh, this has been far, by far the best 10 minutes in the diner in a minute. Um, so, Aurel, you are born and raised in Brooklyn. Tell me, tell me about, tell me about a young Aurel. What, what's, what, what, what is he dreaming about? What does his life look like? What's relationship with family? Just tell, fill, fill out that world for me a little bit. So I grew up in um, I grew up in the projects in a place called Canarsie. Um, Canarsie. So uh, it, it was a you know low income uh, housing development. My um, father is a, a dark-skinned Jamaican man, and my mom is a white Jewish woman. Um, so I like to call myself Jew-Macon. Right? Um, so, you, you know, that, that detail is very important because the experience that I had growing up was I was uh, in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, um, and I grew up in an environment where there really wasn't that many white people. So really my only experience with white people was like my mom. So it became this thing that became a huge part of my identity growing up because uh, until probably, I don't know, fourth grade. Yeah, I would say fourth grade. I had no sense that it was weird that I'm brown with a white mom. Like there was no, um, that didn't exist for me until people started pointing this out. And then that became the point where I got made fun of and the point where like, oh, well, he's white or he's Oreo the outside or on the inside kind of thing. That's where that distinction. And then it became even more fascinating um, because I uh, I really struggled with, like, where do I sit? This was a big deal for me. So in the cafeteria, you know, there's a famous book, which I'm sure you heard of, so why do all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria, right? Yeah. That, was, that was a big part. So in my school, all the white kids sat together because um, it was predominantly African-American, all the schools that I went to. So I would be cool with them and cool with, you know, my friends. And then like during lunch, it was always this really weird, like, who am I choosing as my um, sense of self? And it gets even yeah. more confusing if you want to go deep down into this rabbit hole, because every summer 
um, after I was probably about seven or eight years old, my mom would send me away to summer camp. So I would go to a, a, a Jewish sleepaway summer camp, right? And I'm going to spend four weeks listening to Dave Matthews and, you know, <laughs> this kind of vibe and then come home to like, you know, Jay-Z. And, and it, so, so it, it, it was very interesting because I, I felt like I was living in two worlds yeah. and I didn't really feel like I ever truly owned either one of them. Um, and that was a huge part of my like identity, huge part of like my journey and trying to figure out how to come to grips with caring about who I am and knowing who I am and like, what table do I sit at and what table do I not sit at? And that was, that was a big part of it, man. Yeah. What a, uh, yeah. What a mixture. Uh, I mean, you are, you are the melting pot that we talk about when it comes to the United States and, and, and just the fact that you said it was, so it was fourth grade that you mentioned that people started pointing it out to you that it was weird. And so that you started noticing that it was weird. Uh, first off, kids uh, telling the truth is always fascinating, right? The way kids just kind of point stuff out, be like, that's weird. You're like, I don't know, um, right? <clears throat> and so, but for you, you know, in, in in thinking back to that moment, was there a, as you grew, as you were growing up, did you find like senses of pride in each one of those things at different times of your life? Um, yeah. Or was it kind of like, oh, I'm proud about all this being this cool mixture of things? Or was it like, wow, this is actually kind of hard? Like, did you have some disdain for some of that? Like, what, what was that like? Yeah, so it, the pride didn't come in until college. Okay. Um, it, it, it was it was probably quite the opposite. Um I, I kind of wish people just didn't know, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. So there's another element that's kind of interesting. Um, I couldn't articulate this when I was a kid, but, you know, as adults, we have more access to language and complex thought. Um, when, when I was a kid, I had a also really other weird thing. In my neighborhood, all of my friends, my entire friend circle that, like, I hung out with, my core friend circle, yeah. I was the only kid with a dad, Right. So this is really fascinating. My dad not only was there, but he was actively involved, like legit cool dad. Like I still think he's one of the coolest guys in the world. Yeah. So what was interesting is I had a lot of pride around my dad because he was black and cool, right? But what happened is, and my mom's a fantastic woman, right? You know, and I love her for a thousand reasons. We're still very, very close. But as a white woman, I noticed I kind of felt this like, I'd rather my dad come than my mom come. Mm. I'd rather like, like, I, and I don't want my mom to think I don't love, and I couldn't articulate it like back then. It's not that I don't love you, mom. It's just that like, it's cooler for me because of him. Like, he's like a, like, you know, he's a little bit of a rarity and he has a, like, he's muscular. He's, you know, cool, charismatic guy. So I wanted him around more and I wanted that more to be my identity. So growing up for me, I noticed I kind of pushed away um, the, the, the white identity that I had. And I never would deny it. And I never would um, say it wasn't there. But I'd rather not talk about it if I didn't have to. Sure. Yeah. If that kind of was the case. Unless I was in what I would call a safe environment. So if I was in like a Jewish uh, summer camp or if I was at like a synagogue or an after school program or something, then I leaned more heavily into my white side because I wanted people to be like, well, why is this brown boy, you know, the, the raisin in the bowl of milk, if you will, like, why is he here? <laughs> I don't get it. And I would lean more. So it almost became opportunistic, to be honest with you. Uh, where does it behoove me to own um, this part of my identity? And I would lean into it until I kind of um, in college is when I actually learned 
to integrate both of them. And mm. I just didn't have that access, that, that accessibility when I was growing up. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, right? You got, you play the game, right? So I mean, so much of our youth is, is about survival socially. Right. <clears throat> um, and uh, I know for you, you, you mentioned that you grew up in a, a lower income household. And so, you know, survival may, that word may hit you differently. And so feel free to push back on that. But, but still like socially, there is a lot of, it's a lot of survival mentality. Like how can I get through and be kind of unnoticed <laughs> or kind of just like skirt past and just be seen for the reasons that I'm cool um, and not the reasons why I'm different. Um, yeah. And, and so that is, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And what a juxtaposition to be going from a place like Canarsie that is predominantly black African-American to and Caribbean American, et cetera, et cetera. And so to a place that is uh, like you mentioned, like a, a lot of Jewish schools, right? Like, I mean, those are, those are PWIs essentially. Um, and the, the Jewish religion is a predominantly white institution. Um, yeah. And so uh that had to be fascinating for you. You know, a, a big word uh, that is often thrown around when I hear about conversations like this and people who have been in somewhat similar situations at various points in their life, the words code switch, right? Mm. Where you're feeling the need to code switch. Did you, did you feel that as well? Did you have a, a vernacular in Brooklyn and a vernacular at summer camp? Like you mentioned, like you're, you're crushing yeah. ants marching in uh, number 41 and Dave Matthews over here. And you're over here having a bit of a reasonable doubt moment uh, right. with, right. <laughs> with Hova yeah, so, in Brooklyn. Yeah, no, the code switching was, and, and that was the thing that I didn't necessarily realize how to do. Um, yeah. And it became a better skill, but here's where it gets really fascinating. Um, and, and people who, who have a mixed identity, um, whenever I bring this up, get it. Right, and it may not be aware. So when I was in like the the uh, like Jewish summer camps, right, I actually had this pressure to be more stereotypical black, hmm. not from me, but from those around me. Like, oh, Rel's from the projects, you know, he's real, <laughs> you know, he's real, you know, he's a thug and everything like that. And I was like, yo, I'm really not a thug. Like, there's really like genetically. <laughs> I can, I know how to interact in it, but I'm not, I mean, if you hear me talking, I'm not going to, no one's going to confuse me for, you know, a, a 1990s hardcore hip hop rapper, right? Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm aware of my presence, right? But I actually felt like um, I needed to, 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 to play it up. So some mm -hmm. of the code switching I did, which was kind of weird, is I actually acted blacker or, or more urban around the white people instead of more white around the white people, because I felt like I had to play a character of what they expected of me. I thought they, like, they expected me to smoke weed and I didn't smoke weed. So it's like, I had to like understand how to be like, oh yeah, you know, we're getting the L's and everything. I'm like, I don't know what the L is. I don't smoke weed, <laughs> but like they expect me to do that and I don't want to let them down. So I actually turned the volume up on it. And then when I was around my black friends, I turned my black down because I'm like, I don't want them to think I'm trying too hard. Because that's what yeah. it felt like when I was on. So it was actually a very interesting, so less of trying to be more black here and more white here, but actually turning up the opposite pole um, to try to fit what I thought was a perceived character that I was supposed to play, depending upon where I was. That is fascinating. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, both of my parents are unapologetically white. I am unapologetic. I'm I'm white, right? Like I'm a, I'm Irish and Italian. How you doing? Watch your mouth. Um, and so, but uh, so you're right. I don't have any experiences like that whatsoever. The one so very small similarity that I have, and this is to, to compare the two, is probably insulting. But when I went down to school, you know, I'm born and raised in, in New York. I went to school in North Carolina. And when I went down there, people could tell I wasn't from the South, and I wanted them to know where I was from, right? Like I'll come down with my New York attitude. And so I did not start saying the word y'all until I graduated from college. I refused to say the word y'all, right? Yeah. Instead, I'd walk in the room, how you doing? We say over there, hey, oh yeah, sure, sure, pal. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'll take a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me, yeah, give me that sweet tea. Yeah, what's that? Sure. Right? Like I would play up the accent, play up the attitude because yeah. it's like, I want you to know I'm different. Um, right. And I'm not, I'm like, I'm not like y'all down here. And it was so fascinating you know, just like, what was it? It wasn't a thought process that I had. It was like, all right, James, you're going to North Carolina. You got two choices. What are you going to do? Uh, but it's, uh, that's the closest thing that I even have uh, potentially <laughs> that's not even remotely close to what you had to do with a uh, deal right, but with, it's, I should it's, say. It's interesting because you, you brought up a really, uh, a really po uh, a poignant point in my opinion, which is it's not a conscious effort, right? Like if mm -hmm. I went back into who I was then, it's not like, all right, I'm going to do this. It's, it's looking back, you can go, you know, in your case, and I think everyone's life experience is uniquely their own. So like, you know, your unique experience was, I don't want them to think I'm one of them because visually they may think, and I don't know if he was rocking the beard because you have a luxurious beard, right? So like <laughs> people could look at you and go, oh, that's a deep Southerner right there. And you're like, no, I want it to be very clear. It's not. So there's this like subconscious or unconscious dial that you can turn up, you know, I can turn up, you know, my, my wife still makes fun of me because I can't say um, uh, ERs at the end of sentences. So instead of saying water, I say yeah. water or sneaker, water. you know, yeah. summer like that. <laughs> like I can't get rid of that part of my, like yeah. I can say summer, but it sounds so weird. Um, so, but, but you know how to dial it up and I can turn it up and turn it down depending upon the context that I'm in, but there is a need to like make sure people don't confuse you for for this so you turn it up depending upon how you need to so it, it, it's it's 100 survival it's a you know uh, survival is how do i make sure i can survive you this social situation physically safety mm -hmm. you know so i could turn it up turn it down depending upon what i think is going to help me survive on on multiple levels you know and i think that ultimately um <laughs> and this is me like getting on my soap i'm gonna get on my soapbox i'm gonna get off hop up hop there. up <laughs> right. So I think one of the things that we do as adults is we forget what it's like to be youth, right? Like to be kids. Mm -hmm. And we say, oh, just own who you are and be super, super, super proud of it. Right. And that's exactly true. And we have to take into consideration there's a survival mechanism that has to be built. Um, and I think what happens in a weird way is you actually have to first go through that phase. Then you can decide if you want to hold on to it or let it go. And that, that for me was college where I decided... I'm I'm exhausted trying to play a character that I'm not. And if mm -hmm. I can actually learn who I am. Now, if I could have learned that as a teenager or, a, you know, junior high school student versus a college student, um, I think I would have probably been better for it. But for my particular journey, I needed to go through that. So I think we can, as adults, also give a little bit of um, uh, slack to people who go through survival to, to get through and then let them discover for themselves, like, you know what, you don't have to do that fitting in stuff. You can be yourself. But if you feel like who is yourself is not cool enough, 
Yeah. Like my my mind was always like, oh, they always say be yourself. And I was like, if I was actually cool, I would be myself, but I'm not. <laughs> so I got to be this guy yeah. until like, you know, I figure out how to be actually cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And knowing what we know about human brain development, who, I mean, I don't know if it's possible to know who you are at a much younger age. Now there's some people who go through some, some pieces of life that make them grow up faster, right? Like I myself was raised with more than enough and didn't really have to think about, you know, where money was coming from or, you know, just like didn't have to be in constant fear of a family member or something happened to them or, or whatever, right? Insert any of those fears that people who grew up differently than I may or may not have had to deal with. And so like I could hang out in my naivete as much as I want. And there's some people who go through hard things in life where they, they lose a parent earlier or they go through a horrible divorce or of, of parents or they you know as a as an illness as they have can't, whatever like people grow up quicker i do believe that um and so but i do think it is it is fascinating when we learn some of these things and and i love that you said like grace is a powerful word to give to those individuals that are still trying to figure it out a little bit um or who are uh you know when we're looking at the youth and be like why are they doing that right like i can't believe it like we forget what it would like to be in that moment and just being in the middle of social survival yeah yeah and you know one of the things i always i, I think is super funny about adults it's a stupid thing adults do um that you know I, I i for sure i'm sure i've done this as well is we say one of these phrases and it gets us frustrated so we say one of these phrases which is I'm trying to save you from the mistakes that I made. So you have mm-hmm. to listen to me, right? And it's it's said with the best intention in the purest heart. However, my response to that adult is, did you have an adult that said the exact same thing to you? Yeah, but I was still stupid to, to listen. Yeah, exactly. Because for <laughs> lots of people, we're all too stupid until we're smart. So then yeah. what happens is people give up on youth because they think, oh, they're too, they're like, I, I give them, I give them the best advice and they don't follow it. I was like, cause you didn't follow it either when you were younger, right? Yeah. Like you, you forget that you did the same thing and you think it's different because now you're older and you can look back. So there's this weird dance of um, consistently mentoring and trying to support and help and, and show the folly and letting people discover for themselves um, uh, because at the end of the day, you could tell me not to touch the stove, but until I touch it and burn my finger, I don't really get why you're telling me not to. So it's this weird balance of, I want to give you the game so you, you can do it, but also I have to be okay with, I'm going to give the game and they're probably not going to listen. And that's okay. Cause it's a long-term game, not a short-term game. Yeah. 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 And you don't want to say the phrase, you'll understand this when you get older, but at the same time, it's like, you're going to understand it when you get older. And it just, yeah. it kind of is what it is. As annoying as it is to hear that right now, if I tried to put it in any other way, it's like, you know, I don't know. It's just, yeah, you're not going to enjoy the medicine. Uh, yeah. That's uh that's powerfully put, man. I, I love the pushback on that popular phrase. So, yeah. so Arel, you, uh, you grow up, you tell us about this, you know, this awesome, the fact that your, your dad is very present in your life. He's this charismatic, larger than life kind of guy. Your mom is in your world. You're still very close with her. Um, and at what point did you, uh, at what point did you kind of look at your life and be like, I want to do X or Y? Like, what, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like, you decided that you want to go to Binghamton, for example. Like, what was the goal in going to Binghamton and, and going to university there? Like, was it like, oh, I can't wait to be an accountant or I can't wait to be a, you know, what, yeah. what, what was that like? Because so also, it's, it's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 please finish. 
Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you had the experience of going away to summer camp. So, but a lot of times for people that grow up in the, in, in places of the projects, as you described, they don't think that Binghamton's an option for them, right? Like Binghamton yeah. might as well be like Binghamton. What country is that? Right. Um, because it just, you know, it's just so far, even though it's only four hours away, four hours is crazy, right? You know, yeah. you know, what was a, you know, a handful of subway stops away. You didn't really know the rest of the world. A lot of times people in that, that, that grow up in those, in those communities just do not have the opportunity to get out and don't even see it as an option. And they're being told, Oh, you want to yeah. leave? What's wrong with us? Right. It's a kind of that crab trap mentality that sometimes happens. And I welcome yeah. any pushback if I'm putting any of this wrong, man. Cause you know, obviously we, you have the lived experience. I have the hurt experience. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So for me, college was my way out. You know, like um, I, I didn't know about like choosing a career or anything. It was just I want to get out the projects and I can't shoot a basketball well. Um, I can't rap and I can't throw a punch really well. Right. So, you know, I, those kind of things of athletic sports and uh uh, music, it wasn't on the table for me. So I was like, well, the only way I'm going to get out is, is college. Um, I was fortunate enough that I have an older brother who was uh, two years my senior. He went to Binghamton University. So at 16 years old, I went up to visit him when he was in college. Mm. And I was like, this is the coolest place in the whole wide world. There were <laughs> girls just walking around in his dorm, just like, yeah. right, I'm like, they live right there? And he's like, yeah, they live right there. I'm like, but like, <laughs> No one is going to like tell you you can't go. I'm like, no, we could go right into their rooms right now if they let us in. If he would knock on his friend's doors and they let us in. I'm like, I'm sitting on a girl's bed. This is the <laughs> coolest thing in the world. How does not everyone, you know, and then like, and I'll be very honest, like the caliber of girls that I saw at college <laughs> were significantly more beautiful yeah. than the caliber of girls that were walking around my neighborhood. And again, I, I want to say that as, as any of my friends from my neighborhood watching it. It's just for me, I was like, they're all here. This is, <laughs> if this was the only reason to get me to go, it was a damn good motivator. Cause you know, I was like, man, so, so going to visit my brother and seeing, you know, going to a college party and, you know, going to like seeing, and I saw kids who were cool, you yeah. know, who, who would, who would be back at my neighborhood and be considered cool kids. But here they are in this new environment, like going after academics and going after like positiveness. And it, it just felt like for me, um, I should do it. And then when I was um, also that same year, I took part in a program, um, which was a, a black student union at Columbia University ran program where they took kids mm -hmm. like me and brought us um, onto the campus for a weekend. So I actually stayed on the Columbia. So I had this positive experience at Binghamton then I have this positive experience with um, Columbia and I go, this is the only, I have to go. Like there, yeah. there's no, and, it, and then I didn't even apply to one college in New York city. I didn't even want the potential <laughs> option that I got accepted yeah. into. So everything I applied was basically in New York. So my guidance counselor, the advice she gave me was um, if you stay within your state, you pay less tuition. So I wanted to save as much money as possible. So I applied to all the SUNY schools um, that, you know, like five or six SUNY schools that I thought like were the best, uh, because they, people told me they were the best. Right. Yep. And, um, I got into Binghamton because, you know, I probably had a little bit of, um, uh, nepotism luck because my brother went there and colleges like, you know, legacies and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So he, he did the hard work I snuck in. <laughs> um, and for me that just being there was fun. The funny thing is there's another, there's another question that I hate that we ask kids 
um, I hate I hated it, and I hate when other people ask it, which is, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what yeah. do you want to do? We ask the question. I'm going to tell you why I hate it. Because 99% of kids have no idea how to answer that question. Right. So what they do is they answer you with something that shuts you, the adult, up. Doctor, mm. lawyer, teacher, cop, engineer, right? There's these th- they, they, We have no idea when we were a kid, like a teenager or whatever. Like we've never shadowed a doctor. We've never been with a veterinarian to know what work they do, to know if it really is. I know yeah. that as a kid, somewhere along the line, adults start asking me, what do I want to do? And I start going, when did we have that class? When did we have the, what you should, like, I've done the math class. I've done the English class. I've done the history class. I've never done the, what I should do with my life class. So I start feeling nervous. So I start answering things that aren't true just to shut people up. And my answer was lawyer. That was my answer. Mm, I'm going to be a lawyer. Every time I said lawyer, everyone went, wow, lawyer. And I was like, it's not really science-based because I wasn't really good at it. It's not really math-based like engineering or scientists or doctors. So I felt like, you know, I could do it. So that was the the original path that I was on. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Just because it shut people up. Not because I knew what I was doing. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, another an, a, another mic drop there for sure. With uh, with that, que- I hate that question. It's a terrible question. It's a lazy question. It's a question we should ask. Apparently, according to whatever places we're like, you know, if, 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 at no point in our lives are we just allowed to be satisfied for each other, right? It's like, oh, okay, you went to college. Well, what are you going to do when you get out of college? Hey, when, when are you going to get married? When do you have kids? When are you going to this? When are you going to retire? When are you going to die, right? Like, uh, it's always like, when's this going to happen next? Instead of like, that's cool that you're in this moment. How's it feel, right? Yo, no, one, it's- no one celebrates the moment. You're in yeah. college. What are you going to do after you graduate? Like, I just got here. Like, <laughs> it's like I don't know. I'm going to talk you know? to her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, that's my main goal, if you want to know. Like, yeah. I'm trying to holler at her yeah. and make her my girl. That's what I want to mm-hmm. do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is also funny, uh, Arel, because you, uh, you like I, have been to – uh, hundreds of college campuses at this point in our in our lives, just by the, the 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 fortunate nature of what we do, and the fact that you called SUNY Binghamton beautiful um, is hysterical to me. Uh, because when it comes to college campuses, it's not the most beautiful. But to your life experience at that moment and the opportunity that was there, the humans that were walking around, you're like this is paradise um and it's so right and and i don't blame you for that right but it's just so fascinating like knowing the schools that we've been to we've been to some of those quintessential like oh i bet you this college has been in a few movies because it looks like a stereotypical college um and uh but yeah i think it's i think it's so cool uh, to hear that you know based on your life life experience up to that point that was beautiful and i and i love that that's amazing yeah, I mean, what's what's so fascinating is like there's so much of the world that you don't know that you don't know, right? Yes. Like uh, if you head on, um, you know, like a, a Syracuse University or a Cornell, these things look like a postcard of a college, right? They look very, but for me, the fact that we had like like all this grass and trees, it's like <laughs> wow, look at that. <laughs> I will say this, though. I will give Binghamton a lot of credit that um, they if, if you haven't been there in the last two years, um, they have I'm built not. an incredible campus. Uh, it did not. I mean, all of my friends that graduated with me were like, look at this dorm they got now. Like, it's like a legit <laughs> hotel suite. And before it was like, really, they they have definitely invested into it. But, you know, I think that it's the whole 
um, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man rules, you know, like yeah, uh, absolutely. if you take me in the projects and then you put me at to any university campus, it's beautiful. Yeah. No, and that's why, and that's why I wanted to call attention to it because that, uh, I, yeah, I thought that was that was incredible. But it's a little something that I picked up on while you were talking. Uh, so, when did becoming a professional speaker come into your world? Right, you're at Binghamton. Uh, you you eventually do pick a major because you graduate, right, and stuff like that. Like, you know, how do we get from that point to being being a professional speaker? Yeah, so my, my entry point was actually I got really, really lucky um, and I got introduced to entrepreneurship. I didn't know that existed. I didn't know it was a thing. Um, and I got a mentor who was a professor there who was in, uh, the entrepreneurship professor and in, in, involved with a club. Uh, it's called Students and Free Enterprise. Now it's called Enactus. Um, and it's basically a business-based club. And I wanted to be involved with it because of him. Mm-hmm. So one of the pieces of advice that he gave me was, you know, go to as many events as you can and meet as many people, hear as many speakers as you can. And at first, I'd go to tons of speakers who came to my campus and tons of events. I, I went to like local events for like the Chamber of Commerce and they loved me because I was a college student. And every event was so boring and bad. Like, this is not a disrespect to those people. Yeah. It wasn't for me. It wasn't built for someone like me. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? This is the price of admission. If I want to be successful, I knew I wanted to make money. I knew I wanted to be successful. And I thought the price of admission was I had to go to these boring like things. So um, that entrepreneurship professor, his name is Angelo Mastrangelo. Um, Great In his name. class, fantastic name. Rhymes. <laughs> sounds like like honey on your tongue. Right? Perfect. It's perfect. Uh, <laughs> he created a, a, a business plan competition where um, if you were a student in his class, you could present your idea and then you would win $5,000. Um, which was amazing. So I did that. Um, I won that competition and actually started a business when I was in college that was an off-campus housing service for students. But doing that, I went to see this one speaker and um, he was amazing. Unfortunately, I don't know his name. Um, I'm sure he may not even be alive because he was older um, when he spoke, but um, the guy was incredible. Uh, Lighting up the stage moving left to right, had people laughing, had people doing all this stuff. And it was the first time in my life where I saw a guy and I was like, I want to do that. Yeah. I want to, I don't know what the hell that guy's doing, Yeah, but I want to do that for the rest of my life. And I think, and it was funny. I was like, I think I'll be really good at it. And I never felt that way about anything. Um, So it was because of the entrepreneurship journey and then going to these events and then having these bad ones juxtapositioned with this really (laughs) good one. That made me go, that's the thing I want to do. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, I, I guess I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. But growing up in what many would perceive to be an instable environment in the projects, as far as like, where's money coming from? What are we doing? What do we got to do to, you know, to make sure we get food on the table? I don't know if exactly what your journey was. So again, please feel, please fill in these gaps where I know I'm leaving them. Um, but <clears throat> to go from that, a lot of people in those roles, when they grow up with instability, only want stability. Entrepreneurship is seen as not stability, right? It's it's a risk, it's a risk-taking thing. And so I think it's cool that you kind of bucked a, a pattern that's not a hundred percent, you know, for everybody that falls into it, but you know, the fact that you were like coming out of this scenario in Brooklyn, going to college, learn about entrepreneurship, and you're like, 
hell yeah, something super risky. Let's go. Um, right. And you kind of took that. Was that, did, uh, did you, did you notice that? Or have you gone back and thought about that in some of those moments or yeah. is the way that I'm writing this just as someone who's not a part of that, uh, either scenario, uh, writing it wrong. No, it's, it's, it's a really, really good question. You know, um, I don't think that I ever looked at it. I don't think I had the, the conscious ability to look at my life as unstable. What right. I could look at it as is I don't want to be here. So I never felt right. like, oh, when am I going to get food? When am I not going to food? I, 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 necessarily, I don't think I processed it that way. I just processed it as I don't want to be here. And then what happened to me was I, I, I had this moment where um, I... I don't even think my dad even knows this. It was this really small moment. I never forgot it. It was uh, super like uh, my dad was hanging out with me late at night. And I think it was probably like a Saturday night or something. And we're kicking it, having a great time and just talking it up. And it was snowing outside. And my dad had to go to work uh, Sunday, Sunday morning. Um, So I remember staying up and I probably stayed up till like three or something like that. And then, you know, we said goodnight. And um, I didn't go to sleep. I was just like, I guess, watching TV. And my dad wakes up and I was like, oh, snap. Like, I'm supposed to be asleep. So I turn the TV off, but I'm awake. And I see my dad, like, get ready for work. And, like, you know, it's probably like 4, 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. You know, get ready for work. And he's slowly putting his clothes. You could tell he's just beat because he didn't sleep more than a couple hours. And I looked out the window and I saw him walking through the snow, you know, on his way to go to work. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, he does not want to go to work right now. You know, he does not want to go to that job right now. He wants to stay home, but he has to. And I think that it like burnt inside of me. Like I never want to have a job that's going to force me to be somewhere if I didn't want to be there. So I think the way I looked at entrepreneurship um, is I looked at it as a freedom thing. And, And again, anyone who's an entrepreneur knows they work more than someone who has a job. But I saw that um, a business owner could decide whether they showed up or not. And if I, I, my belief at the time was, well, if my dad owned the company, he wouldn't have to go and he could just like call in or, or do whatever. So I think I built this like maybe an allergic reaction to having a job because of that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if I've ever really processed it until you asked that question, but mm-hmm. that's the first vision that popped in my head of seeing him sludge through the snow after a couple of hours of sleep and going, I never want to do that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I would I would say that's where it came from. Yeah. Thanks for telling us that story, man. That's uh, yeah. that that painted a powerful visual. Uh, and and I, and I appreciate it. and I appreciate you you know pushing back on some of the parts where I, I spoke incorrectly. Thank you for that because it's, it's your story. I want to make sure we get it right. Uh, so much love on that. So you choose entrepreneurship. You want to be. You decide I want to be a speaker. And now. Now you're killing the game, right? Like, I mean, you are, uh, you're one of those speakers that as I was coming up, I knew your name Um, and, and you were someone that I had seen as someone who this person's made it. They are doing it full time and they are successful. They are well-loved. The way that people talk about him uh, is very high and not just like, he's a good dude. It's like, he's a good dude. And he's also really great on the stage as well, right? It's platform skills. Uh, And so uh, I love that. Uh, and I, it's not, I, I, uh, what I want to say is I appreciate that you were, you were role modeling, even when you didn't really know me. Um, and you were some of that when I was like, can I do this full time? Should I do this full time? Do people do this full time? Or is it always just kind of something they do on the side? Uh, you were, you were one of the early ones for me that showed me that. Cause I was a part of an agency 
that had 50 people on the roster. And when I first got on the roster, I assumed everybody was full time. And then I learned very quickly that only like three of the 50 were full time. And I was like, what the hell are the rest of y'all doing? Um, and, and so like, I didn't have as many role models and names in that. And so uh, I just want to thank you uh, for doing having the success that you had and putting and, and having the, uh, the charisma and the connection that, you know, people spoke about you because it, it was just one of those things like, okay, this is a possibility. Like people can do this. Cause I think that's what I want to do. Um, and so I just, I just want a quick shout out to you on that note. Uh, but what, what I'm wondering is that, you know, when I introduced you, we talked to you, uh, I introduced you as a human behavioral investigator. These are terms that you've come up with now, based on how you describe the girls at Binghamton, I think I understand where you came up with this, but uh, no, I'm just playing, man. Um, but still, I'm curious, what does that mean, right? You are a speaker about a human behavioral uh, investigator. You're someone who studies the intricacies of human dynamics and relationships. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and how, and how you chose that. Cause Choosing to be a speaker is one thing. Choosing what you want to speak about and then diving all the way hell in is another. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, I'll, I'll take one step back just to thank you for for that comment. Um, I think, um, and you know this too, um, one of the things that this profession, being a public speaker, a professional speaker specifically, uh, affords you the opportunity to do is um, impact people that you probably will never know how you impacted them. You know, there's lots of people that look at James and will say, my life got changed forever when that dude with a beard came and just rocked it, right? And so to hear you say those things is really, really um, beautiful because uh, a lot of the work that we do, the impact is anecdotal. You know, it, we, you, you have to hear a story five years after it happened and mm-hmm. or get that Facebook message six years after it happened to be like, oh man, like there was something there. So I just want to acknowledge the, the, um, uh, the beauty of what you said and that um, to be in a position where you can make a, a difference is probably why folks like you and I get so pulled to industries like this. Yeah. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that part. Uh, the, the second thing about how do you find it, it, it doesn't come easy, I think. I think one of the challenging, most challenging parts as a speaker is you spend the first um, years trying to figure out what's my thing, you know, mm-hmm. like you, and you start out someone you're not. I just think it's part of the process unless you're really lucky. Like you're like a a diet version of Tony Robbins or like (laughs) a light version of Les Brown or, you know, like you're, 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 and I see them all the time. I see the speakers all the time. I'm like, okay, that guy likes Eric Thomas. He's like clearly ET, like light version of ET. Right. You know, because in the beginning you're trying to figure out who are you on stage? What is your stage presence? What is your, you know, then what is your topic? What are you really, really good at? So it's a process. And, you know, what happened for me is um, I started looking at what interests me naturally. Um, what um, do I don't need a lot of motivation to do? And it's it's really the study of people. I love um, mm. human social dynamics. I love interacting with people. Um, there, there's a podcast that um, has you know lots of great content that I ran called The Art of Likeability. And it was all about like how to be more likable and how to connect with people because I believe relationships with humans um, in my humble opinion, is the single most valuable asset that exists. You know, if you remove positive relationships, but increase everything else, it's still a pretty crappy life. And if you have a great relationship with people and decreased everything else, it's still a pretty good life. So mm-hmm. I think it's like one of those one things that if you actually build good relationships, you know, with others, and then as a byproduct of that is you have to be good with yourself. 
because if, if, if you can't be good with yourself, you can't be the best with others. Um, I think it just becomes the, the, the biggest domino that knocks over all other dominoes. So I started getting really interested in human behaviors. Why do we make the decisions we make? Um, because I had the black and white thing going on, I was really fascinated in understanding white culture, very fascinated to understand black culture. So I kind of observed it from afar and then tried to incorporate it. And then when I got into college, I was so lucky that um, I met the coolest people in the world. They happen to be Latino. Uh, so I joined a Latino fraternity uh, because I was like, you know, they said you could be whoever you want in college. So yeah. I became a Dominican. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are you? Are you uh, are you a LUL? LUL, yeah. Lambda are you? Yeah, that's amazing, man. I'm yeah, an I, I'm I'm an iota phi theta fraternity incorporated, man. It's an MPHC organization. Oh yeah, I know. I have I have a very very good friend who who yeah, is man. in that. So small yeah, world, same, same colors, same colors, small, it's exact same colors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, small world, man. Um, but I, I, yeah, most people don't even know LUL. So the fact that mm-hmm. you know it is amazing. Um, but what happened with all of those dynamics, whether it was Latino culture, Black culture, White culture, and then it was I started being around very successful people because of entrepreneurial endeavors. I became fascinated to understand, like, what are the social norms? Like, mm-hmm. what what do you do here that you don't do here? How do they think here? How do they think here? And it, it kind of became, like, fun to kind of codify it and 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 kind of say, like, I want you to notice people say this and it's it's actually, like, hurtful. People do this and it's stupid. All the people you love notice how they do these things and all the people mm-hmm. you hate so it, it, it's something that um, I didn't know this term. I, I just recently learned it's called subject object awareness. Um, so we're subject to so many things. When you grow up in inner city, you're subject to inner city culture. When you grow up in rural, you're subject to it. But if you actually step back and look at it, it becomes an object. And if it becomes an object. Now you can decide whether you use it or not use it. Hmm. And, and that's where I think my, my interest came in. And then when I started seeing the power of it and sharing it, it clicked. And I just kind of dug really, really deep in it, but it took a very long time to get there. And I was doing all these other things before that. Yeah. First off, I uh, thank you for the journey you just took us on. And it is, uh, yeah. How does one arrive at what they are going to speak about? Right. It's like, okay, not, not only am I going to get on stage and talk to all these people about a specific topic that ideally means something to me that I think should mean to them, but also you're going to pay me. Um, right. So I need to be an expert at it, or at least an expert like, or I have to have a powerful story about it, you know, one way or the other. I think, you know, there are some people that go through something really traumatic and they realize that speaking is a way that they can give back to a community that maybe have gone through a similar traumatic thing or prevent another community from committing the same traumatic act or whatever. Right. And so sometimes there's people who go through an immediate trauma um, that are like, I need to talk about this. Um, but <clears throat> Most speakers, I don't think, have that. Um, I think they have something else, kind of what you were talking about, of like, well, what matters to me and what do I think should matter to other people? And so I love the way that you were speaking about that and your journey for how you arrived at that. And so, you know, we talk about the art of likability um, and we talked about uh, just being super fascinated by human behavior. And would you say right now, you know, if I, if I were to look at your business like a pie chart, what percentage of your business is still RL on stage speaking to an audience that has booked him to speak versus I know you have some other cool programs where you're helping other speakers 
learn what they who who and what they are on the platform right and you have some cool programs around that of uh, of true speaking success and uh, you know there's another thing that you do called message to masterpiece like you know what what does your business look like right now yeah so you know the the machine that drives everything for me is still speaking it's still okay. 80% of the pie right um it's the thing that i have I have in the past attempted to say, I'm going to pull back from speaking um, and, and, and stop doing it. And I'm going to do, you know, this coaching program or this consulting or this online course or, you know, these other projects. And ultimately, um, nothing really has driven me as much as public speaking has. Like, it's fun. It's work that, honestly, I, I know you feel this way, James. Like, there's a part of you that still can't believe you get paid to do it. Like I would like, yep. literally I would do it for no money, you know, yeah. cause I enjoy it that much. Um, the, the program I'm working on that is, and it's funny how it's, it, how speaking works, right? What I notice about everything I do, speaking is the core center that drives it. So like there's a, a software that I'm in the process of building called Talkadot and it's to help speakers um, in a really, really deep level, get great feedback, but also get more speaking opportunities from each talk. And that wouldn't be possible if I didn't have so much experience speaking, feeling the frustrations I feel, coaching people, feeling the frustrations they feel and being like, man, I wish there was a better way. So for me, the public speaking is still um, the biggest driver. Uh, the coaching is all nice money. Uh, the consulting is all nice money and I enjoy doing it. But if I stop speaking, the whole train stops, you know, so like yeah. it's a big part of what I do. Okay. Great. That's good. I, I didn't, I did not know that. I know you had these other cool irons in the fire. I wasn't sure what was keeping most of the fire lit though. So to hear that, it, that it's speaking is, is awesome. And you, you know, I want to go back to the, just the art of likability, not necessarily the podcast, but just the, the concept of likability. I have a, a buddy of mine is a fellow speaker named Antonio Neves. Um, and he says, uh, you know, people always come up to me and ask me if I'm charismatic or not. And so you know, I have to tell them, did it, have you ever walked into a party and then someone came up to you a little while later and said, when did you get here? Because if so, then you're probably not charismatic, right? And so like when we think about likability, likability means so many different things. It's not just like you're the coolest person in the room that everybody gravitates towards. It means a whole bunch, but it's also a giant source of insecurity um, for many of like, what is likability? We still hold on to some of those things. Like we were talking about those social dynamics from high school. It's like, well, I was never the cool kid. I was, you said I was never a rapper. I couldn't shoot a basketball. I couldn't do like some of those tropes that, you know, uh, would probably make you quote unquote cool or, or alpha, right. You weren't the star quarterback. Um, and so a lot of us, many of us grow up being like, well, I'm not cool. And coolness is something that we sometimes attach to likability, but they're different. I think we could speak to how uh, that they're different. I'm curious to hear how you would describe the difference between being cool and being likable. And also I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, as we go through life, making friends as an adult is weird. And so like, I, like I, had, I had this experience yesterday where I had these friends of mine who I or new, newer friends of mine where I asked them, Hey, you know, can we all hang out this weekend? And then Sunday rolls around, which was the day we kind of talked about it. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, like I, I wound up showing up at this guy's house, being the last one to hear that everybody else was hanging out. Right. And like, I was like, 
oh shit <laughs> like, like, like i'm trying to get liked by these guys so that i could be memorable and they want to hang out with me but you know at the same time it's like i'm the last one to hear about the plans that i tried to set up and and so like i got a little selfish stuff going on right now here in, the, in this question as well Aurel. if you can't tell we can unpack it later but still that idea of of likability and being seen as cool is something that a lot of people carry as a chip on their shoulder for a long time uh, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that yeah, you know, I it, it was one of the things that I thought was a very intriguing um, um, specificity, right? Uh, the, the the idea of likability, and I think what happens um, is that word can conjure up like junior high school popularity contest, yeah, or high school, yeah. <laughs> like how cool am I? Am I popular? Mm-hmm. Am I am I accepted? Do you do you validate me? And um, I think that is a um, an entry level viewpoint of it. I think a, a mature viewpoint of it is, at the end of the day, we like to be around people we like. Um, and I think people who say I don't care if people like me, I always think that's BS because you are around people who like you. And if you don't have anyone who likes you, you're probably a miserable person and you're unhappy. Yeah. You need someone. You need. We all need someone. We need like a couple people that we enjoy being around. And for me, I see likability as something, you know, a charisma, if you will. I used to think that you were either born with it and you're like Antonio Neves, who's like the coolest guy in the world, right? <laughs> and you're either born with it, like, you know, maybe he's born with it because he was like, uh, look at me, I'm a Nickelodeon host and now I'm going to be a speaker. And it's like, oh, okay, cool guy. Damn it, you're so cool. You know, and I love that guy. He's an amazing guy. You know, and I used to think like some people like him grew up with it and he was lucky and he was part of the, the genetic lottery. And what I wanted to do was say, no, you know what? Anyone can access it if they want. Anyone can do it. Because when I studied people and I studied patterns, I was like, there's really specific things that the most charismatic, the most it factor people do that people who don't do, who don't fall into that category don't do. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to access it and use it whenever I wanted to. um, So I could have this deep, meaningful thing called relationships. Um, So I think that the distinction is that likability is about creating a space where you like yourself and you like the people who are around you and the people who are around you like you. Um, Because I think that you can love someone, but not like them. And that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. I always wanted to say, if I'm in people's lives, I want them to want to be in my life too. I don't want Mm -hmm. them to be like in my life out of obligation. So I think like ability and, and the ability to move it from subject, like it just happens, to object, I can look at it and choose to use it how I want, gives you accessibility to social power that typically only a few people have. And, and I think it should be democratized for everyone. Yeah, I love that, brother. I love that. I think uh, I respect I respect the way that you put that. And I agree that. It's so funny when we talked about likability, like I myself went to that, that immature place of like, do you like me? Right. I clearly have stuff that I'm working out with my counselor and I'm grateful for her. Um, but, but still, right. Like it is funny how that moment of our life impacted us so much, even thinking about the way that you talked about being in upstate New York and starting to claim upstate New York, upstate New York is not cool. Um, right. (laughs) There are parts of it that are cool, but as far as to the general world, Telling somebody you're from Brooklyn and telling someone that you're from upstate New York carries two very different things, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and and I love how 
part of, of, of getting to being more likable and realizing that being good in your own skin is being comfortable with where you are and realizing that where you are, who you are is enough, right? Yeah, I'm enough to be liked. I am enough to be appreciated. I'm enough to be around. I'm enough to want, you know, for someone to be friends with, I'm enough for all that kind of stuff. And like the way that you talked about upstate New York, I think is a way that I would love to get to a place that I would love to get to with how I talk about myself of like, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm here. Right. You either want to be friends with me or you don't, but there's still part of me. That's like, come on. (laughs) Right. And, uh, and so much of that has to do with being secure with yourself. Um, and there's, there's, there's power of that self-awareness in likability, uh, that, uh, that I think comes out. Would you agree? Yeah, I think what happens when you when you when you can use likability as a tool, um, your confidence goes through the roof. Um, at the end of the day, what is confidence? Um, confidence is knowing I can do something really well. That's what confidence is. Like when I have swag, when I'm a basketball player, it's because I know I'm like I'm really really good at it. So yeah. likability gives you an incredible amount of swag when you're interacting with people, right? So like a very simple thing um, that just to make this a little more practical for folks, um, there, there's a, a I don't know if it's idiom, if that's the right word, right? But there's a a value that I live by is be interested in people. And that's how you become interesting. Um, So what most people do when they try to be likable is they try to impress someone. Let me do this thing for you. Or let Mm -hmm. me show you how cool I am. Or let me um, humble brag. And it's actually the antithesis of likability. Where in reality, the emotion that people feel when they are in your presence, is the emotion they transfer to you. So for example, if I meet you, James, and I become fascinated by you, James, tell me about where you're from. Tell me about you. Oh my gosh, you do that? Tell me more about that. How did you get, okay, but what do you like about it? What do you hate about it? Who do you think is also, like I become super fascinated and most people aren't used to someone generally being interested and fascinated in them. So if I'm interested in other people, and then I just leave that conversation. I could have never said a one word about who I am, what I do, but people would be like, I like that guy. I don't know. It's something about that. I like that. That's a cool guy right there. Yeah. What's his name? I don't know, but I like him. What's he do? <laughs> I don't know, but I like him. Where does he live? I don't know. But So one of the things that I would encourage people to consider is um, taking a huge fascination in people. Um, I, this is one of the things that I'm uh, big on when it comes to this. So I'm, I'm going to throw this in as a bonus here. Um, one of the worst questions to ask people uh, is, what do you do for a living? Um, I'm actually a big fan of never asking that question again. The question that I love to ask instead is, what's one thing new or exciting in your life? Mm-hmm. And I let them, if now if they happen to talk about work, fantastic. But for some people, they don't want to talk about work. Maybe they hate their job and they want to talk about how they homebrew kombucha instead, right? So like, and they have no place where no no one ever asked them, how's your home brewing a kombucha going? Like, it's not, <laughs> if I say, what are you excited about? You're like, well, if you're actually interested, I'm home brewing kombucha. I never heard of kombucha. Tell me more about kombucha. What the heck is kombucha? Why you do that? What it look? And now I actually get fascinated. So I, I think one of the ways that we deal with it is realizing that if we can utilize it as a tool and we can use it as an, a thing, if you will, then when I'm with you, I know I can use it to get to know you because I care about you and I want to get to know you as a human. And then by definition, you care about me and want to get to know me. So it's this kind of reciprocal thing where I first become interested in you. 
then by definition, I become interesting to you and you want to be around me. And it's just, you know, as simple as caring about other people and asking them questions and letting them shine. And then that allows them to feel like, wow, when I'm around James, I shine. I want to be around James more. Mm -hmm. Brother, I absolutely freaking love what you just said. Tina and I uh, will sometimes talk about how on, on stage, we'll talk about how to have better conversations and whatnot. And we say, you have a choice, be interesting or be interested. And being interested is the far easier and far most successful choice, right? Interested is if you being interested, I should say is the easiest choice Um, because being interesting or assuming that you're interesting is kind of like stepping up to bat and be like, I got, I'm going to hit a home run. Right. And that's it. But realistically, what, what's your percentage of hitting a home run? Probably pretty low. But if you say, yo, I'm going to get on base, right. I'm just going to get on base. I'm I'm a hit. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hit a single or whatever. Right. Like, you are far more likely to succeed. Um, and, and that's kind of that, that's the way we look at interesting versus interested. Um, and, and choosing interested is always the best way to say, to, you make somebody else look good. You make somebody else feel good. And we remember people who made us feel and look good. We remember individuals who valued us and we, we hold on to those people. A, a great question lasts longer than an impressive moment. Mm-hmm. Right. A great question is something. That, and so being interested is something that we, it just it just it just is far more sticky. Um, and so that's what I love about what you just shared. Uh, and and yeah, I appreciate it greatly, man. Uh, Arel, we could talk about this kind of stuff for for a long time. Uh, and and I hope that people will check you out on arelmoody.com and 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 learn more about how they can learn about being more likable slash just how they can learn a little bit more about their human behavior and, and interacting with others and how to be more successful in social situations and in work situations and, and leadership opportunities. Uh, you deliver so much value to those that get to spend time with you. And so I hope that people will uh, check him out on his website and various other places, anywhere else that people should, should look you up or up. Yeah. The, the great thing about having a weird name like Aurel Moody is that no one else in the world has it. So I am the only Aurel Moody on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever. So, you know, I'm probably most active on like uh, maybe Facebook or Instagram. Um, so feel free to check me out. LinkedIn is, is wonderful as well. But um, ultimately, uh, reach out. If you listen to the podcast, genuinely send me a DM and be like, yo, I loved your Diner Talk interview. It means the world to me to get messages like that. So um, I would just uh, encourage people to reach out if they are so interested to do so. And mm. I would be very interested in your outreach. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. A-R-E-L is how you spell Arel. And uh, that's Moody with an I-E. So Arel, thank you so much for coming and kicking it with me, the diner, man. It means the world that we got to link up in this way. Well, I, I look forward to the day in which we do this interview at a real diner with some waffle fries and you having a slice of cake and me having a slice of lemon meringue. Let's go, my guy. Let's go. Y'all, that was my time with Arel Moody. What an exceptional man. 
I just really appreciated his story from talking about growing up at Canarsie and, and, and having these two beautiful parents who were just trying to do right by their family and put in the work and then learning about Binghamton and maybe going to Binghamton because there's some hot women around, but then learning about the opportunity and, and the beautiful green grass of upstate New York and hearing how he then drove into entrepreneurship, being a speaker to the point where he now teaches us to get out of our own way and recognize it in conversations we just need to ask cool questions. The difference between small talk and a cool conversation is asking better questions. And that is why, my friends, I end every single podcast with the phrase of do me a favor till the next time we kick it in the diner. Punch that small talk in the face by asking better questions. You all take care. This has been special. Be well. Y'all, it was so much fun kicking it in the diner with you. And I would say our timing was right about perfect because I just finished the last few drops of my milkshake. <laughs> listen, y'all, you would do my self-esteem a huge favor. If wherever you listen to podcasts, if you could leave a rating, if you could subscribe, if you could leave a comment, a review, anything like that, that is how we get this podcast into more people's ears. And if you want to stay in touch with the podcast elsewhere, we are Diner Talks with James on Instagram. Pretty original, huh? I agree. Also, if you want to hang out with me just individually on more places, I am James T. Robo all over the internet. Y'all had a blast with you. I appreciate you. Take care and stay great.